So as I shared with you last week, um, it seemed good as we looked at John 11 last week, as the Lord showed that yes, He is indeed the resurrection and the life as He called a man four days dead out of the tomb. And uh, so it seemed good just to uh, take the next step in John chapter 12 um, and take a look at what happens there as Mary anoints Christ in preparation for His burial and also uh, His entry into Jerusalem for the last week of His life. Um, and I thought I would begin this way. The ladies who have been studying the Gospel of John will know where this comes from. And many of you will as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who recognizes where that comes from? Anybody know? John? John 1? Yeah, John chapter 1. Uh, excerpts from the first uh, 14 verses. Who is the Word? Jesus Christ. Who is God? Jesus Christ. Who is the Creator of all things? Jesus Christ. Who took on flesh and dwelt among us? Jesus Christ. Of course, you know, those of you who know your Bibles, the Gospel of John is just one long look at the beautiful um, Son of God. So, this is how John opens the Gospel. Again, last week, Jesus said He was the resurrection and the life, and He proved it. And so tonight, we will see Jesus move into Jerusalem to sacrifice Himself for His people. But first, I thought we would look at Mary how she loved Him, and how she worshipped Him. If you don't mind, I'd like to begin tonight in Mark 14, and then we'll return to um, chapter 12 of John. Mark 14. I love this account. A little more detail in this account than there is in chapter 12 of John. I'm going to begin in verse 3. Mark 14.3 and while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Verse 6, But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to Me. For the poor you always have with you. And whenever you wish, you can do them good. But you do not always have Me. She has done what she could. She has anointed My body beforehand, before the burial. Verse 9, And truly I say to you, wherever the Gospel is preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of her. I've always loved this text. In fact, I think it may have been, it was one of my first five to ten sermons. I mean, I've always been captivated by how Mary loved 
Jesus, right? And so I always try to put myself in, I've always liked to try to put myself in her head. And I'll just ask you to put yourself in Mary's head. And she's sitting across from Jesus, right? She's already confessed that she believes He is the Christ. She believes He's God. And He's sitting across the table from her, right? I mean, at, at Simon the leper's house. Oh, Simon the former leper with Lazarus, the former dead guy. And they're sitting there having dinner, right? And she's looking at him. And she's thinking, i got to worship this God. Well, this is what happens with all true believers, right? i got to worship this God. So she excuses herself. She runs down, down the, the road, right? She goes into her bedroom. She gets the most precious thing she owns. It's a vial of costly perfume. Let's put it in our context. I don't know what minimum wage is in Italy. What is minimum wage in Italy? Let's just say, do we know? We don't know. Okay, let's just say 20,000 euros. I don't know if that's right or not. Is that, is that right? 20,000 a year. Less 15,000. 12,000. 12,000 is still a good number, okay? 12,000 euros. And she can't wait. She can't wait to worship Jesus with it, right? So she runs back down to Simon, the former leper's house, right? And their eyes meet, and she loves him. She doesn't care what anybody says, she doesn't care what anybody thinks. She breaks the vial open and she pours 12 grand over the head of Jesus. And as we know, she received uh, criticism. Why? This money could have, it could have been sold and the money could have been, been spent for the poor. It's, it's been, why was this, this perfume wasted? Actually, in the text, it says wasted. Was it wasted? Is it wasted to worship Jesus Christ? Is it ever a waste to extravagantly worship Jesus Christ? It's what she was doing. And of course, the thing you and I need to remember from this text it's how Jesus responded. Jesus says, well, this is awful that you worship me like this. This is, this is a bad thing that you extravagantly and you know, with abandon worship me. No, what did Jesus say? Jesus loved it. And Jesus defended her. And Jesus protected her. And Jesus said something that we should never forget. And we talked about it, I think, uh, Wednesday night at Young Adult Bible Study. Jesus said, this will never be forgotten as long as the gospel is preached, she will always be remembered how she loved me. And we talked about it Wednesday night. Anytime you love and worship Christ, it will ripple eternity forever. God never forgets. Men may forget. God never forgets. When His people love Him like this, He never forgets. So what I'm saying to you, go out the door and worship Christ Jesus extravagantly. It doesn't matter if anyone else sees you do it. That is beside the point completely. God sees it. And God will never forget it. And God will reward you. For all eternity. Some of you are working for, you know, 300 denarii. A year's wages. And that's as big as you can think. God is challenging us to think on an eternal scale. He says, I'll never forget what she did for me. <laughs> Listen, we, we, we think too small, beloved. 
we're thinking way too small. We need to learn to think like God thinks. We need to learn to think about eternal reward and not the 300 denarii. I love, I love what John 12.3 says. Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His, his, hair with, uh, wiped his feet with her, with her hair and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now you guys know, right? You know when you, when you have a strong perfume on you. It's like when you go downtown to the fashion district and these people are walking your way and you can smell them about you know, a block away and, and when they get past you, you can still smell them, right? But this is, Jesus will have this fragrance on Him all week. He smells like royalty. Oh, guess what? He is. <laughs> and so when He stands before Pilate, when He's nailed to the tree, when He's put in the tomb, He smells like royalty. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It was absolutely the best use of 12,000 euros. So, Jesus is God. It's the quote I always share with you at Easter and the quote I share with you at Christmas. J.I. Packer, renowned theologian, he says the more you think about it, the more staggering it is. Amen? Those of you who actually believe Jesus Christ is God, you, you have to be staggered. You have to be staggered by it or you haven't really believed it. If, if you haven't been staggered by it, then you certainly have not believed it. If it's a fairy tale, it's just like every other fairy tale in the world. It doesn't matter at all. Eat, drink, and be merry. Go live your life. If it's true, He matters more than anything else ever possibly could matter in your life. Nothing else matters as much as Him. You say, well, Jim, what about my marriage? Your marriage doesn't matter as much as Jesus. What about my kids? Your kids don't matter as much as Jesus. What about my job? Your job doesn't matter as much as Jesus. And when you get Christ in the right place in your life, when He's first in your life, then the marriage works all the more better. And the relationship with the kids is built on solid ground and and you become a better employee. It just, you know, it's the trickle-down thing. If we get the first thing right, if we get Jesus Christ right, we will get the rest progressively right. So, God is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is what we call Palm Sunday. It's the day that the, the church of Jesus Christ remembers Him coming into Jerusalem. It's the Sunday before what is often called Easter, but I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. So God will be portrayed, He will be arrested, He will be scourged, and He will be crucified because He loves His people. We know this from Scripture. And so my question for each of you, uh, before we get into the text, does this biblical truth fill your heart, soul, and mind, and imagination that God has come for you? Does this truth fill your heart? Has it changed you from the inside out? Has it changed the way you live every single day? This is what true Christianity looks like. If we've really believed that Jesus is the Christ, everything has changed. Everything is progressively changing. Um, it's what it looks like. And so I'll just ask you have, you, have you got to the place where you love and you can see yourself worshiping like Mary? 
Now, some of you in here have probably never worshipped like Mary. Maybe some of you have. Extravagantly. Um, almost, uh, yeah, with complete abandon. With no forethought for what the consequences might be. She was so hopelessly in love with Him that she worshipped Him in this way. So, as we watch Jesus ride in on a donkey in John chapter 12, He's riding into Jerusalem, I just want us to remember who, who this is. And all of you who have a little bit of biblical knowledge, you'll say, I know who this is, Jim. I've heard it all my life. I've been in church all my life. I know this is God. Well, I want us to stop and think about it just for a few minutes. So I want you to bear with me. I'm going to look at some Old Testament passages. I want to remind you who this is. This is the God who speaks two trillion galaxies into existence. This is the God of Genesis 1.1 who created heaven and earth. This is the God of Genesis 2.7 who formed from... Uh, he formed man from the dust of the ground, and man became a living being. This is the God of Gen Genesis chapters 6 and 7, who wiped out the whole world apart from Noah and his family. This is the God of righteous judgment and indignation. This is the God of Exodus chapters 3 through 15, when he crushed Egypt, and his people called him a great. Warrior. This is the God of Exodus 19, the God of Mount Sinai, the thunderous, fiery, smoking, quaking mountain. The God who gave the law. This is David's God, 1 Chronicles 29.11. David prays, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and in the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt Yourself as head over all. He's the God of Psalm 97. This is the God, okay, I want to remember, this is the God on the donkey, humbly coming into Jerusalem, okay? Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, clouds and thick darkness surround Him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne, fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries round about. The earth saw and trembled, the mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. He is the God of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. He, he uh, uh, Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion and He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Thy great and awesome name. Holy is He. He is the God of Daniel 7. His throne is ablaze with frame. Flames, a river of fire was flowing out before the Lord, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. He is the God of Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, in the train of his robe, filling the temple. And one of the seraphim called out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is the God of Isaiah chapters 40 to 46, where God God says, I am the first and I am the last. Even from eternity I am He. I am God and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Before me there was no God. 
and there'll be none after me. The nations are nothing before me. I sit above the vault of the earth. I am the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth. I am the God. I am God and there is no one like me. That is who is on the donkey coming into Jerusalem to bleed out for you on a cross. Now, I think it's important that on occasion we remember and recount who this is. And J.I. Packer's right. If you believe it, you will be staggered. This can't be some small religious dogma, doctrine kind of deal. This is God on a donkey. It's a breathtaking proposition. So why is God coming to redeem a people for Himself? Oh, I guess it's because after we sinned, we felt bad about it and, and we begin to seek for God and mankind has always sought for God and mankind really wants God. Mankind just can't find God. And, and we've uh, dedicated ourselves to seeking out and finding God. Is that what happens? Is that what happens in the Bible? <laughs> Who's the seeker in the Bible? Who's the seeker in the Bible? It's always God. Men don't seek We've talked about that many, many times. Uh, just a brief summary of Romans 1. I, I, you say, Jim, you go to Romans 1 all the time. It's because you, you can't understand the biblical gospel if you don't understand who God is and you don't understand who you are. Romans 1 reminds us who we are. We need a Savior. So, we have suppressed the truth of God within our own conscious, consciousness, Romans 1. We have exchanged the truth for a lie, Romans 1. We have exchanged the glory of God for, you know, created things, Romans 1. We are utterly thankless to this benevolent God, Romans 1. We have not honored God as God. We have actually hated God with our indifference toward Him, Romans 1. Mankind is full of unrighteousness and wickedness and inventors of evil, Romans 1. We have not sought for God, Romans 3. We have no fear of God uh, before our eyes, Romans 3. We have willfully made ourselves into the enemies of God, Romans 5. We have indulged the flesh and become children of wrath, Ephesians 2. I could go to many, many more Scriptures, but we understand what the Bible says about us. <laughs> we don't deserve a Savior. But here He is on a donkey. God is seeking us. This is a breathtaking proposition. I've never understood people who call themselves Christians and they think in such a small way about this that they're not staggered every single day they wake up understanding that God has loved them like this and sought them out, right? The groom has come for his bride. So, why has God done this? Why is God on the donkey? Why is God on the donkey? You guys know what an intervention is, right? You've heard of this. Some of you probably participated in it. It's like when somebody that you care for, a friend or family member, you love them and they're engaging in some kind of self-destructive activity. Maybe it's drugs. It can be a, you know, a lot of different things. And because you, you love this person, you intervene, right? You confront this person. And that's really what the Gospel is. God is confronting you with your self-destructive, 
activity. God is, God is you know, intervening in your slow walk to hell. Right? God is staging an intervention. It's what He does in the Bible. Why does He do it? John 3.16 For God, what? You tell me. You guys know John 3.16. For God, what? So loved the world. God stages an intervention. Right? He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Holy Spirit says it again in Ephesians 1. Just as the Father chose uh, us in the Son before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Romans 5.8 says it again. Uh, but God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, the Holy Spirit says it again, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. There are many, many other verses I can go to, but you guys understand what's being said. God has set His heart on a people and He will redeem them. He will do it. It's why God is on a donkey. It started right after Adam and Eve sinned against God. Remember, Adam and Eve went looking for God and they were trying to find God. No, wait. What was it? What happened? God came to them. Where are you? Adam, wherefore art, wherefore art thou, Adam? As the old King James used to say. Wherefore art thou? The seeking God came. Yes, to righteously judge, and yes, to begin the process of redemption. Some of you will remember Genesis 3.15. And he did that prophetic reference with respect to uh, the, the, the seed of woman bruising the, the head of the serpent. So, God comes to Adam and Eve with warranted judgment and an unwarranted promise of redemption. And He promises that the seed of woman would come. Genesis 3.21, God sheds the blood of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Why is that significant? What does the Bible say about, about sin and the remission of sin? What is required for the remission of sin? Blood. The shedding of blood. Now, a lot of people reject Christianity because they hate this aspect of it. There are 10,000 reasons people run from God. Um, the true God, the living God, Jesus Christ. But some people hate this, the bloody aspect of the redemption that Christ has purchased for us. They say, well, this is an awful thing. Yes, your sin is an awful thing. It's an awful offense before God. So you get some small sense. If blood must be shed, you get some small sense of just how heinous your sin is before God. You find it distasteful that blood must be shed? Well, God finds it distasteful that you would be indifferent toward Him and grossly sin against Him. Beloved, we have no concept of how evil and heinous our sin is. You know, people always complain about hell. Hell doesn't begin 
to address how heinous our sin is to a holy and righteous, benevolent God. Blood must be shed! It's a picture of how great our sin is. Hebrews 9, 22, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9, 26, Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So, God is staging an intervention. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. Bam! He came to Adam and Eve. Bam! He came to Abraham, right? Bam! He came to Moses, right? Do you, do you, do you see a, a pattern here? New Testament. Bam! Mary and uh, Joseph. God intervenes. It's what he did with every disciple. It's what he did with the Apostle Paul. You guys remember the Apostle Paul. He was on his way to kill Christians. And you remember what God did? What did God do? Bam! <laughs> it was an intervention. It's what the Lord does. It's what the Bible is about. A loving intervention by God. So God's on a donkey. He's going into Jerusalem. Let me give you, give, let me give you the context and then we'll quickly look at the verses, the applicable verses in chapter 12 of John. So Jesus spent the evening with the family He loved in Bethany, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Next morning, it's a Sunday morning, Jesus leaves Bethany, which is only like two miles west of, I think, yes, that's right, two miles west of Jerusalem. Um, and you may notice there in chapter 12, verse 9, it says that, let me turn to it, chapter 12, verse 9, it says, the great multitude therefore of the Jews learned that He was there. So there's this multitude that had come out. They, they learned that Jesus was at Bethany. And the multitude had come out to, to, uh, to Jesus. And the multitude will return to Him as He begins to make His way toward Jerusalem. So this multitude accompanies Him into Jerusalem. He ascends the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And uh, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, those Gospels tell us that the disciples had procured a donkey for Him to ride on. And they had put their garments on the colt and Jesus rode the donkey. Jesus begins to move toward Jerusalem. He descends the Mount of Olives. And... Matthew writes this, all the city was stirred. <laughs> There's that word again. Stirred. If you've believed it, you've been stirred. And the scholars tell us there are probably two and a half million pilgrims in Jerusalem. Okay? Probably two and a half million. Um, there's a lot of people here. And the whole city is stirred. Most of them don't even know why. But God's riding a donkey. And he's coming into Jerusalem, right? <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. So, John chapter 12. Let me be, pick up here at verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come out to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Verse 14 of John 12. Excuse me. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated 
on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, uh, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these things and that they had done these things to him. Verse 17, and so the multitude who were with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and the and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. Verse 18, For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So, we don't know how many people, there, there's a multitude here. And Jesus is coming into the city. God riding a donkey. And I always, whenever I, I talk about this passage, I have, to go, I have to look at Luke chapter 19. You guys remember the story. Jesus is coming in and the crowd is praising Him and calling Him uh, Messiah. And, and, and uh, what else are they saying about Him? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees complained about this, right? You remember? They said, teacher, teacher, stop. Stop your disciples. Stop your disciples from saying these things. Who remembers what Jesus said? Jesus says, I'll just read it. I tell you the truth. If these become silent, the stones will cry out. I've always loved this text, right? It reminds me of the Job passage. Um... Job 12, 7 and 9, 7 through 9. The text says, The beasts know, the birds know, the earth know, and the fish know, oh, and the rocks know. It's only mankind who professes not to know that Jesus is their creator. I tell you all the time that creation, all that you see in the created realm is for the glory of God. And Jesus is saying, if you won't glorify me, the rocks will. The rocks know who I am. Are you going to be bested by a rock? Let me ask you. Are you going to be bested by a rock? <laughs> Are you going to go out the door and bring glory and honor and praise to the one who saved you from eternal condemnation? Hebrews, pardon me, John 12:13 tells us the people were crying, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a quote from Psalm 118.25. Now if you look at Psalm 118.25, you will not see the word Hosanna. You will see what the word Hosanna means. The word Hosanna is a one-word prayer. It means, O oh Lord, do save us, we beseech You. So the people are crying out, I don't even know if they know what they're crying out. Lord, save us, we beseech You. It's what Hosanna means. Lord, save us, we beseech You. Oh, that's what He's doing. He's on a donkey. God's coming into Jerusalem to save a people for the glory of His name. God put this prayer in the psalmist's mouth thousand plus years before it was ever applied to Christ as He comes into Jerusalem, right? And here He comes answering the prayer. 
<laughs> Here He comes answering the prayer. It's one of the beautiful things I love about prayer. When did God begin to answer this prayer? Tell me. When did God begin to answer this prayer? In eternity past. It's when He began to answer every prayer. God began in eternity past. I just read you the text not too long ago from Ephesians 1.4. He the Father chose us in Him the Son before the foundation of the world. The, the prayer was answered in eternity past. I love this about God and I love this about prayer. God is answering the prayer. He's coming to save His people. So, this scene in verse 12, or pardon me, in chapter 12, it begs the question, where are all these people on Friday? This is Sunday, and they're praising God. They're proclaiming Jesus the Messiah. He's the One. It begs the question, where are all these people Friday. Where are all these people? And why are some of them on Friday saying, crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Why has that happened? What's going on here? How did it go from Hosanna to crucify Him? How did it happen? We know how it happens. It happens all the time in the modern church. If you've been a pastor like me as long as I have been, you, you would know. And some of you already do know. But people want God to be what they want Him to be. And if God's not what they want Him to be, they turn from God. Amen? I see it. I've seen it my whole career. Even before I became a pastor. When I was just a lowly deacon, right? <laughs> In the local church. And I was still an accountant by trade. You see it all the time. You know, you hear people say, well, my God would never do this. My God would fix that. My, God, my God's a God of love. My God would never uh, judge anyone. My God wouldn't send anyone to hell. You hear people talk like this. What, when you hear people talk like this, what are they really saying? They're saying, <laughs> I've made up my own God. I, I don't really care what the Bible says. I, I dismiss the passages I don't like. I have my own God. I've, I've created my own cartoon God. And what did the Jews want? The Jews wanted what? A, a worldly king. That's right. A, a, a military leader who would throw off the shackles of Rome. That's what the Jews wanted. And of course, God's always thinking on a much bigger scale than we are. And when He turned out not to be that, they killed Him. They killed Him. So, that... That's what's going on. That is what is going on there. Verse 15, it's an abbreviated prophecy of uh, Zechariah 9.9. Let me just read Zechariah 9.9 to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is coming into the city. Prophecy is being fulfilled. Prayer is being answered. God is doing a breathtaking thing. And most of the world says, eh, I'm not interested. 
you know, people hear the gospel, they hear the name of Jesus Christ, they're, they're exposed to the Bible, and they say, eh, I'm not interested. I don't need it. I don't want it. You know, as we always say, don't we? Often, the confession of the man or woman who's indifferent to God, I'll have no God over me, is what the psalmist says. I'll have no God over me. I'll live my life just like I want. Well, God has given you a will. If that's what you choose to do, then you'll stand before Him and give an account. That you lived your life exactly like you wanted to. And you gave no... Well, let's go back to Romans 1. You were thankless and you did not honor God. So. Someone told me in seminary, a professor I really respected, he's an Old Testament professor and I, I never looked it up and I've seen it elsewhere written in in other books but apparently there are 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus now I've never personally verified this so I'm telling you this second hand I've never counted all 300 of them <laughs> I've counted a lot of them but I've never counted all 300 of them he is the Christ he is the Christ he is the Christ. So, exactly who is riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem on that Sunday 2,000 years ago? He is God. And if you have any doubt about that, um, you've not been listening. He is God. He is the God who spoke heaven and earth into existence. So exactly why is God riding in on that donkey in Jerusalem? That Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Ephesians 2.4 Because of His great love with which He loved us. Jeremiah 31.3 Because He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. John 17.23 The Lord has loved us even as the Father has loved the Son. Did you hear it? I'm going to say that one again. This is the one that... I never get over this. Listen to how the Father loves His people. The Father has loved you even as the Father has loved who? The Son. He doesn't love you in some subordinate way. He loves you like He loves His Son. And you think Christianity is something small and something to be trifled with and something to play with and something to ignore and something to uh, you know, put in a box on Sunday and live the, live the life you want to live the rest of the week? Listen, you've not understood the Gospel. You've not understood the Gospel. <laughs> the Father loves you like He loves the Son. That can't be small to you. If it's small to you, you haven't believed it, is what I want to say to you, beloved. I say it lovingly. If, you, if it's small to you, you have not believed it. Not in the way that God calls us to believe. Like Mary believed, right? In such a way that I love and worship this God extravagantly in every sphere of my life. Of course, we all fail miserably, but that is our goal. I worship God in my marriage. I worship God in raising my kids. I, I worship God at work. I worship God at the university. I worship God in, in the neighborhood. I worship God in my trials as we've been talking about. I'm always worshiping Christ. Just like Mary. You know, I love... I, yeah, it's no, it's no accident, right? <laughs> that, 
that uh, John 12 has this picture of, of Mary loving God and, and then God loving His people coming in to save us. This is what real Christianity is. It's this mutual, sacred romance kind of thing. Right? And I'm going to lovingly say to you, if that's not going on with you in Jesus Christ, then I, I invite you to go home and, and get on your face and, and talk to the Lord about it. Right? And if you, if you need, need my help, please feel free to call me. and we'll, we'll get together and we'll talk about these things. This is the greatest love story ever. Ever. How God has loved us. So next week, we will remember the measure of God's love for us as He is nailed to the tree. And I want to close like this tonight. Many have called this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as His triumphal entry. You, you've heard this, if you've been in the church all your life, you've heard this all your life. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. Actually, if you look at the Luke uh, passage there, Luke 19.41, Jesus is weeping. Jesus weeps over the city. This is not a triumphal entry in the truest sense. That's a very superficial reading of what's happening here. This is a bereaved God coming to give Himself as a sacrifice for sin. Palm Sunday is not the triumphal entry of Jesus. That is still future to us. That is revealed to us in Revelation 19. And I'll just turn and read it. Revelation 19 Verses 11 through 16. Now, this is a triumphal entry. John writes, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on a white horse. And from uh, his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty." And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I understand that church tradition likes to call this the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday. It's not even close. The triumphal entry will come at the end times. <laughs> He's coming back in power and glory and majesty and judgment and redemption. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we'll talk more about it next week. I know that you know during Palm Sunday and Easter, it's kind of like a holiday in Europe, and I know many people travel. But I, if you're around, I pray you'll come and, and, and we'll remember. We'll remember the cost of our redemption. We'll remember what it cost the Lord to save us from ourselves. 
We'll take a look at His cross. We'll take a look at the burial. We'll take a look at His resurrection. So I hope you can join us next week as we remember this awesome thing that God has done. Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. Forgive us, Father, for those of us who call ourselves Christians and we are not staggered. And we are not stirred. We understand if we are not staggered and we are not stirred, we have not believed, really. That the God of Psalm 99, the God of Psalm 97, the God of Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, the God of Isaiah, the great God of Isaiah, we've not believed that It's you on that donkey and it's you on that cross. We've really not believed it or we would be staggered. So Lord, I pray. I pray that you would help us to see and believe. I pray that the Spirit of God would help us to understand that there is no more important decision than who we decide Jesus Christ is and how we respond. Lord, forgive us if this has been a small truth in our Christian walk. For how could it be? Lord, we ask Your help this week as we begin to prepare for Resurrection Sunday, the high point of the Christian year, to remember that You sacrificed Yourself for us and death could not hold You. Oh Lord, I pray that we would set aside quiet time to begin to prepare our hearts to celebrate this amazing, amazing account. Thank You for John 12. Thank You for how Mary models what love for God is. And thank You for how Jesus demonstrates what God's love is. We love You, Lord. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I will close with, uh, with a benediction. Let's stand together.